Y'all feel like dancing? It's really hard right now for us to feel where you're coming from because we can't see you, we can hear you. If you make a lot of noise, you make us party much harder. I don't know how the security is here. I don't want to cause a problem. But if you feel like dancing wherever you are, get on up and get down. Hey, Jay. How may I help you? Dude, uh, I didn't think this was going to be the way things were going to go, but 2020 through the stick in our spokes of rocking and rolling once again. Yeah, continuing its reputation as a shit show. But the show must go on. This show must go on. Despite the shit show, the right. show must go on. My name is Dion. I am a member of Lightning Licks Vinyl Preservation Society, a collective of vinyl enthusiasts whose mission is to celebrate and examine our often unhealthy, always obsessive, more often than not creepily intimate relationship that we share with the physical media that is vinyl records. And I am on the telephone with my sonic sensei, Jay. And guess what? What? Guess what? What? I'm Jay. Oh. (laughs) Of Lightning Licks Radio. I'm here. On the phone, on the goddamn phone. Yeah. Jay, it's been a tough year, man. It has been a tough year. One of the things that made it so shitty besides people we care about getting sick and dying, uh, we can't go to shows, man. And we haven't been able to go to shows no. for a long time. For a it's very so long time. I, yeah, I can't even remember the last show that I went to, honestly. I know that there was many shows that you were looking forward to that you weren't able to go to. I was looking forward to two. I had tickets to see Sleaford Mods in Los Angeles. Right. And I had tickets to see Sleaford Mods in Detroit, and I missed them both. I missed them twice. That's unacceptable. It is unacceptable. It's like my favorite band in the world right now. I know. But being that we have a podcast to do because we're fucking dorks and this is our only real outlet to any kind of social activity is you and I on the telephone talking records with one another. (laughs) We were going to do it anyway. So We wanted to do an episode on live shows so it kind of works. Everybody's pining to get back out to go to a live show and so this is what we're going to be talking about this episode, right? Yeah, absolutely. I love how you brought that full circle by the way. Awesome. Yeah, it was, I mean, I I wish it was better, but... No, it it wasn't better. It was perfect. I didn't expect that at all. (laughs) You brought it right to, like, the subject of today's episode, which is what? Tell them, Dion, what our episode's about. Episode 11. Yeah. Our memories from live shows. We're going to tell stories. Yeah. We typically get together and share, you know, the songs we're going to talk about, and we go over things, but this wasn't one of those times. We just knew that uh, each other had these shows that we wanted to talk about but it'll be the first time hearing about these shows from one another yeah it's going to be pretty awesome but with venues and uh particularly independent venues on the brink of bankruptcy due to restrictions on gatherings that were put in place during the pandemic and the shameful fucking ineptitude of the country's lawmakers and stuff these venues where we see these shows they might be going away man they i might know. not be making it back that's really fucking sad yeah let's just house this under covid bullshit yeah yeah 
it's a sad day it does i just feels like while i'm happy for sports fans that they're able to watch sports i feel bad for us music fans who don't really kind of have that outlet right you can watch like uh i mean i i know a lot of bands and artists that i like have been doing kind of like those isolated shows online and it's, it's just not the no, same it's not obviously. the same it's cool that they're doing that but that seems like something that you would uh I don't know, maybe subscribe to to get a little extra, but it shouldn't be the only outlet for these bands to connect to their audience. I mean, in a live atmosphere, there's human connections that take place between these performers and the concert goers. There's a shared experience, uh, you know, from the audience as a whole. It can be emotional, it can be spiritual, in some instances, supernatural or psychedelic if the right amount of chemicals are introduced into the equation. Shows are the best parts of the human experience, all wrapped into one, man, and I miss them. I really really do I, I really do too i didn't at first but as this is dragged on forever and ever like i i feel like god jesus christ i would give anything to see a live band at this point anything yeah anything well jay are you uh ready to take a trip down memory lane and uh, get some nostalgia bubbling yeah up? and i just want to say too it's like and i know a lot of people that listen to our show are big music geeks and i just want to say like when we decided that we were going to talk about some of our favorite live shows, I went with the first three that I thought of as always. But right. like you, like me, like all of us, we've seen hundreds of shows. Like this could be an ongoing subject later, like later days. Oh, like we absolutely. can revisit this again. But I just want to say, as always, I went with the first three that popped into my head. So yes, to answer your question, I am ready. All right, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. So you know what? I always go first. So I'm going to turn the air hockey table on you, even though we're not across from each other on the air hockey table as we should be in a normal world. Right. I want you to go first. I want you to tell me the first show. I want you to tell me the first story. Okay, but a bit of a disclaimer first from me. I'm not like you. I don't have a book with all my ticket stubs in it. I don't have all these tangible 
you know, I don't have that connection. I'm not that. Uh, yeah, let it be said that I have shit spread out in front of me, like I'm doing homework in high school. Right. And yes, you should be thankful that you're not a teenage girl. <laughs> but I just wanted to have a little moment of full disclosure. I have a pretty terrible memory to a certain degree, meaning it's not always 100% accurate. However, liquor's honor. I'm going to do my personal best to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me, Tina Turner. <laughs> but it's entirely possible that I'm going to get some of the details mixed up a little bit. And I've actually attempted to like substantiate some of the accounts of what took place at these shows, nail down some of the more nuanced details of the events with like other people <laughs> who were there. And I found yeah. that these other individuals also had a similar degree of uncertainty about the said details. So basically it is what it is. Let me just say this. Yeah. Four words. Memory is a tricky thing. It is. That's actually five words. Memory is a tricky thing. <laughs> the best that I can do is share my truth, right? Basically. Yeah. And that's all we all can do because it feels real to us. It does. All right. So here we go. I'm going to talk about a show I saw, and it was Boot Camp Click in 1998, Detroit, Michigan. It was on their For the People tour. This was at St. Andrews Hall, great venue in Detroit. So tell me this, though. Who the hell is Boot Camp Click? <laughs> I'm so glad you asked. Well, I have to because I have no idea who that is. <laughs> They're like an East Coast, hardcore-ish, underground hip-hop supergroup. Uh, poor man's Wu-Tang, if you will, uh, <laughs> led by MC Buckshot, who was in a group called Black Moon. Buckshot joined. <laughs> I can't believe I'm telling you like the backstory of Boot Camp Click. I can't believe you're calling it a supergroop when I haven't heard of anybody from the band yet. I s- hey, I said a poor. I'm not a hip hop head though, so poor man supergroup. <laughs> so there's. It's like our poor man's Bloody Marys. You wouldn't take that out into the open and say, "Hey, here, have a Bloody Mary and no. give him one of those cups of swill," would you? No, it's a poor man's. This is a poor man's supergroup. It's still classified. Yeah, I got it. It's a slightly supergroup, superish group. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so go. go. Buckshot joined forces with the rap duo Helta Skelta, featuring renowned lyrical mastermind Sean Price. Also, another rap group, OGC and the Coco Bravas, Smith and Wesson, then the representatives, producers Drew Hahn, also the Beat Miners. They represented NYC, more specifically Brooklyn, aka Crooklyn, aka Bucktown, and the Brownsville area in particular. So, there is your boot camp click backstory, Jay. Jesus Christ. Yeah. If I didn't know it was going to be this kind of party, I'd put my dick in the mashed potatoes. I'm just saying. <laughs> if this going to be that kind of party, I'm going to stick my dick in the mashed potatoes. <laughs> okay, so here we are. Okay, here we are. It's 1998. It's Baby Dion's first real hip-hop show, Jay. I was like... 20, and our good friend Lawrence Jenkins, our good friend drove. It was Larry, myself, Larry's sister Carol, our friend Brent, I think, and my close pal Gary, who happened to be my rapping partner. He and I just started to write and memorize some rhymes together and attempted to acquire some original beats and hopefully perform and record at some point. And he went by the rap name of Lucky Jones. That was my next question. Yeah. Because there's nothing less hip hop than Gary. Yeah. <laughs> I was the mighty Mr. Naps. We called ourselves the Flam Click, and we were dreamers, man. We were going to take the world by storm, right? It could still happen. It could. Yeah. So the five of us pile into Larry's Honda Civic. We drive down to the D to see the boot camp, uh, whom we all dug. We were smoking menthol cigarettes and listening to Camp Low and Group Home the entire trip. And we planned to meet some other friends down there at the show, at which point we'd get straight buckwild bananas. First rap show, buddy. Awesome. I remember waiting in line around the side of the building, as you often had to do at that venue, 
and there was quite an eclectic group of fans, some kids like us, and we were kind of this skater slash street preppy slash coffee house reject motif going on. There was some like gutter punk kids, and there was, of course, the real motherfucking G's, like the local hip hop heads, a lot of Timberlands, and a lot of nappy dreads, straight up roughnecks, but it was cool, man. There was no beef, like everyone was cool, waiting to get in. I remember seeing the boot camp click tour bus, and it was the first time I ever saw a vehicle that was like wrapped in graphics. You know how they do that? Sure. But I didn't understand it at that time, so I'm like, oh my God, they must have paid a fortune to have somebody paint their album cover on their tour bus. I was such an idiot. Well, you were young and you were, you were young and you were fresh, you know? Anyways, we get in and it's getting full, and it didn't take long before there was a thick haze of that dank endo smoke clouding around the stage. And it was like ripe, dude. It was like potent. And I know what weed smells like. This was something different. There was a little more chemically smell. Was it crack? I don't know, you know? But it sure as hell wasn't the Binconning ditch weed that I was used to smelling. And there sure was a lot of it getting blazed. You know, security staff stood no chance at keeping it under control. I don't know how they did it. They just let it happen, I suppose. And I don't remember an opener. I just remember like all of the boot camp, the entire squad plus some, and they were killing it. And the bass was just deafening, shook me to my core. We'd fill in the end of each verse and we weren't alone. It seemed like everyone around us knew all the words to these songs too. It ruled really hard. So the show kicks ass and afterwards, uh, my knees are weak, my ears are ringing. I'm contact buzzing like a motherfucker from the aforementioned blunt apocalypse or perhaps crack. I'm not quite sure. Which is exactly how you should feel post-show. Absolutely. I somehow lose track of the crew that I drove down with. They've just like vanished. But I do, however, see our friend Christy and some of her crew and they're just off stage and they're talking to the click, the fucking boot camp click. (laughs) And Christy's like... She's mega pretty and she's also very kind and like totally fearless. So she's getting all of these boot campers, all these guys that were just on stage to sign like posters and CDs and stuff. So I just sort of gravitated towards that area because I knew her and I couldn't find my other friends. So it just made sense to do that. And it becomes apparent like very quickly that although Christy and her girlfriends are like fine with me being around, the boot campers, they're not so much fine with me being around. They seem to be willing enough to like connect to their admiring fans, but only their admiring fans that like you know look like Christy, not the ones that look like the mighty Mr. Naps from Bay City, Michigan. As it should be. Once again, as it should be. I took the hint and I go outside and I'm on the steps and I'm searching for anybody that I came with. And I see my boy Gary and I recognize him by the cool shirt that he wore to the show, right? <laughs> and he's talking to some dude on the sidewalk not too far away. So I walk down to meet with him, and this dude Gary's talking to is wearing a yellow Wu-Tang shirt. He's a skinny white dude with, like, dark hair. He's holding a box of cassettes, and he's selling them for, like, five bucks a pop. And Gary's holding one of the cassettes, so he clearly must have just bought one. And he notices me, and he's like, Naps, man. He's like, perfect timing. I was just about to rap for this dude. And I was like, uh, (laughs) what? (laughs) And he's like, back me up. We'll do the new one. Come on, give me a beat. And I'm like, give me a beat. Now, mind you, I can't fucking beat box, like, at all. But luckily, there was some cars rolling by all slow, jamming some shit. And you could hear the bass from these cars. And the dude selling the tapes, he doesn't look annoyed or anything. He seems interested into hearing us rap. (laughs) So I just start to nod my head along to the bass of the passing car and start rapping the chorus to one of our tunes. And Gary joins in, and he just, like, rips off a verse. And it sounded something (laughs) like this. 
I bees like, please like, back up off me. I bees like, please like, back up off me. I bees like, please like, back up off me. Oh, I bees like, chill. Somebody tell me what's the deal with all these punk MCs up in my grill. They wanna test my vocab and my verbal skill. They better recognize me, but I'm down that they will. Cause I'll be deadly with the mic like Mike was deadly with the pill. No pussy foot around, I'm going straight for the kill. Keep it showing to the point like I was Bushwick Bill. It gets the pills, nails, and I get them hoes reels. We'll be dripping like a layer singing one. In the mail. Used to be the Duke of Earl, like we ripped from Cypress Hill. I used to smoke a cement until this shit made my dome ill. Now my cortex is pure. That boy, I grabbed the ink and quill. I let my thoughts spill. Drip like blood on a scamp, they dripped off before they have a chance to heal up. Your chances to take on this mic through this cruise like next to nil, so shut the fuck up. The only flow you done tasted before was backwash from Urkos, mass and Gamma rhymes like a butterfly. It's thing like a paper cup while your lines remain still as fuck. It's KLZ is in the house from 93 until forever. Never say I didn't rock ya ever, motherfucker. So we get done with this rap, and the dude's like, okay, okay, it wasn't too bad. Maybe you guys should just slow down a little bit, but it could be dope, guys. You know, keep practicing. And then he's like, hey, you guys need beats? And at the time, we certainly did need beats. That was before I had any equipment. Well, who doesn't need a beat anyway? Yeah, dude, we all need Somebody's beats. Somebody's going to offer beats? You take yeah, that shit. Yeah, I was like, hell yes, we need beats, man. Of course. Set us up. So this dude's like, bet. And he hands Gary this business card, and he says, my man P's a producer. He can get you some beats. We'll get you into the studio. Give him a call. And we're like, fucking, oh, thanks, man, you know? So we successfully rap for this dude who has his own cassette tape out. We think that's awesome. He says goodbye. Uh, Gary slips a business card like into the pack of his Newport Menthol King 100s, like between the cellophane <laughs> and the box. Because, I don't know, we didn't have wallets, I guess. It fits, so it works. And we see the remainder of the crew on the sidewalk, and that's where our night ends. But then... Wait, wait, did you say, but then? But then. There's more? Just a little more. All right. But then. But then. One year later. I get a call from Gary, and this is the summertime, the next summer. And he's like, D, turn on TRL right now. And I'm like, why? And he's like, it's him. It's the guy. The guy we rap for. He's on MTV. And he was, of course, referring to Eminem. That was the dude that sold Gary his cassette tape called Infinite. And he listened to us rap outside of St. Andrews after a boot camp show. And I was like, starstruck. I was like, holy shit. And I says, gee. I was like, the business card. That fucking business card. Damn it. It's Gary. He had lost that business card. He, he lost it like almost immediately, like well, threw out his pack of smokes that of night. Of course. You know, because he didn't hold on to it. And he's like, oh, shit, that sucks, man. And I'm like, gee, look, we had one shot, one opportunity to gain everything we ever wanted. We could have captured it, man, but you let it slip into the oh. trash can with your pack of cigarettes. He's like, oh, no. <laughs> Now, granted, I'm sure Mr. Mathers was just passing off his buddy's information to us because he thought we would probably purchase, you know, beats from this producer that he knew. But in our mind, in our 20-year-old minds or whatever, we were like, that was our chance for stardom. And we threw oh. it out with some new ports, man. <laughs> just a memorable <laughs> concert, though. Rapping for Eminem on the streets of Detroit. Oh, That's hard, bud. Gosh, that's a good, that's a great story. It's too bad. I I wish that uh, Eminem had actually like amounted to something. He was such a flash <laughs> oh, in the yeah, pan, right. you know. Like I feel like it's too bad that he like he had so much potential and he just didn't like match it. He didn't reach it, you know. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. The music business is fickle, <laughs> man. That's all I'm yeah, it is. All right. So after that epic saga, and I use that word epic in the most 
like appropriate way, not the inappropriate way that people use the word epic, but really <laughs> epic. So of course, as we always do, we're going to throw a mixtape together to represent, you know, what we've talked about, right. culmination of of our episode. What song are you going to put on that mixtape, Dan? Well, I'm going to use this to put two songs on the mixtape. One of them is going to be from Bootcamp Click's founding uh, member, Buckshot, who was in that group Black Moon. <laughs> and from their debut record, Entered the Stage, who got the props? And it's a kick-ass tune. Uh, our crew played it all the time. Also, uh, I'm going to include a song from a group, Camp Low. Camp Low was somebody we listened to all the time during that time. We listened to it on the way down to that concert, on the way back, and that is the group that inspired Gary and I to become nearly famous rappers to begin with, and it's a track called Lucini. This is it, and that's going to go on the mix. And Jay, you're going to have the pleasure <laughs> of putting these two songs. I can't wait to hear those songs for the first time ever. <laughs> on the mix somewhere. I'm sure you might have heard them. You might oh, have heard I'm them sure before. I haven't. I doubt I have. I'm certain I have not, but I can't wait to hear them, though, if that's any consolation. (laughs) Jay, I'm fiending for some nostalgia. Can you hook a brother up with some concert stories? You know, here's the thing. I'm not sure that I can follow up that hip-hop beat poetry (laughs) shit that you just did. So I'm just going to do me, man. That's what I'm going to do. So so I have to go back to, of course, the very first show that I ever saw. Jay's first show? Yeah, some people are lucky and their parents drag them to go see the Beach Boys at a state fair. Or they take them to see some shit band that they're embarrassed about later to tell people about. Right. Um, But I want to talk about my first show, my very first rock show, and that was Rush. Canadian Power Trio Rush. Awesome, awesome. Yeah. Where was the show at, man? And they played the uh, the Saginaw Civic Center. Great. It was on the, the Farewell of the Kings tour. I'm going to tell you the date because I am geeky like that. It was January 21st, 1978. You got your stub, dude? Uh, you know what? Here's the ironic and terrible thing about this. Oh, God. I have every ticket stub for every show I've ever been to. If it was available to me, I do not have the ticket stub for my very first show. <laughs> That's a bummer, dude. It's ridiculous. My sister says she has it. She says she's always going to give it to me, but she never does. So <laughs> She um, never does. What's she waiting for? Fuck. I know. I know. She's just teasing me. <laughs> so, yeah. So, like, I had gotten into Rush. I bought the first live record, All the World's a Stage. I was a big Rush right. fan, as far as you could be a Rush fan. A Farewell of the Kings was the record that came after that live record that I got into them on, and that was the tour that I saw them, which also was my very first show at the Second Off Civic Center. Here's the thing. My parents... We're not like cool, hippie, smoking parents who listen to cool rock and roll. But we always had the radio on at our house. And they were always very, very supportive of my music addiction, like from the very beginning. That's awesome. And I was a huge Rush fan. And obviously, it was 78. So I would have been either 13 or 14 at the time. Awesome. Um, Actually, looking at this January 78. So actually, I would have been 13. Um, so I didn't have a ride. I didn't have older friends that could take me. So here's the thing. This is how cool my parents really were. They knew how badly that I wanted to go to this Rush show. Right. My dad worked in Saginaw. He probably stopped at the Civic Center box office after work, picked up tickets. It, it, like, you know how families go to the ice capades and they go yeah. to the circus yeah. and they go to all this shit? My first show was a family affair with me, my mom, my dad, and my sister to go see Rush. That's so fucking cool, man. It was cool. And I love that my parents, like, they were so, like, they wanted me to go to the show because I was so excited about it. So they, my dad bought the tickets, and we went to the show. Who else was with them playing along? Okay, so the, the band that opened up was the Pat Travers Band. 
and I'm not sure. I can't remember if Pat Travers was from uh, Canada or not. He's Canadian. Yeah. Because he's the guy that does the snorting, yeah. whiskey drinking, cocaine. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's... And at that time, when he yeah, yeah. when we saw him, boom, boom, out go the lights, was just about to break big. Unfortunately, Pat Travers never broke out of the opening band like stage of his right. career. He only opened up for people that I can remember. Yeah, Pat Travers opened up for them. That's sweet. Yeah. So, yeah, so my parents buy me, they buy us these tickets. We go as a family. We park in the parking ramp. We go in. We get our seats. And I'm super excited, of course. This is my first rock show. I've been a rock guy, a rock kid for a long time. So Pat Travers comes out. And, of course, it's any live band. He's loud. He's swearing. And I'm embarrassed for because he's swearing in front of my parents. I'm embarrassed. But he's fucking rocking out. And it was awesome. It was it was a great show. I mean, Pat Travers was awesome, but going to see, be able to see Rush, like, because I had like lived and died on that first live record, and then I also lived and died on A Farewell of the King. So they came out and they came out to Bastille Day, which was obviously the first track off the live record, and I, I my heart probably exploded as a little kid. <laughs> I was. Super excited about this it. This is actually happening. This is actually happening. I'm like fucking watching Rush. We had really good seats, like first bowl stage, like left. It was pretty right. awesome. But the thing I love about that too is, of course, it was the 70s. So as soon as the band started playing, much like you talking about the fogs of marijuana, same right. thing in 1978. All you could do, you was just a cloud of fucking pot. <laughs> and but the one, one of the best things though is like me and my mom and my dad and my sister are sitting in our row. And back in the day, too, like when people would light up and they would just pass it down the row. And one of the funniest things I remember <laughs> about that show is like me, like my dad and mom, like passing it. They didn't, of course, they didn't hit it. None of us hit it, but they passed it on to the next group of people who did. <laughs> That's so fucking <laughs> Which rad. is fucking awesome. So, so my parents, like, and, and it's funny if you know Stan and Carol that they're at a Rush show is even funnier. <laughs> so, of course, Rush is just Rush and they're awesome. But I have to say, though, it was 1978. And as much as I'd like to say that I have like really distinct memories of that show, I really yeah. don't. I know that it was fucking mind-blowing. There's one moment that I remember more than anything, and I remember them doing a song from the Farewell of the King's record called Xanadu. It's just kind of this long, right, right. I know. Yeah. epic. Yeah. So I just remember the lights and the intro and all the percussion, Neil Peart's percussion, so how everything was yeah. set up and how awesome it looked. That's really the only thing that I remember from that show. And it's funny too, because if you go on YouTube, there's kind of like a fake pseudo live video of them doing Xanadu from that time period. Uh But that's almost exactly as I remember it. Before I ever saw that video, it's exactly as I remember it. It's awesome, man. And I love that my parents love me so much that they were willing to sit through. And my mom was always, they were both very open-minded to the stuff that I listened to. But I still think it's really cool that my parents went, you know what? Jay wants to see the show. Let's just buy tickets. And I just love that we all went as a family. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's amazing. So yeah, that was my first show and I will not, yeah, it was pretty great. What song or songs do you want to include on our mix at the end of the episode that is going to do justice to your family memory of seeing Rush live at the Civic <laughs> well, Center in Saginaw? Well, the obvious choice would be Xanadu, but right. it's a kind of a long song and I, I just, I didn't want to do this big long song. So I right. wanted to pick, I picked the title track from A Farewell to Kings, which, if you're unfamiliar with the song, listening to it lyrically now yeah. in the in the in Trump's America that we live in, right. it's so bullseye, almost eerily bullseye close to what's so going crazy on right now. That yeah. 
So uh, Farewell of the Kings is what I'm going to use to represent my very, very verse rock show, rock and roll show. Obviously, I know that song, but it's been a long time since I've dabbled in the rush. So I'm excited to hear where you put that on the mix, man. It's going to be sweet. Yeah. Okay, so we both hit our number ones. Going back to you, Dion, go ahead and hit me with another story of your memorable live show for you. Okay. Well, Jay, uh, a lot of times your tastes in music change. Sure they do. And things that were awesome back in the day are always not awesome in the current day. Can I just say this before you go any further? Yeah. Sure. There has never been anything that I have ever loved in my whole life that I still do not absolutely fucking love today. Is that true? Yes. I was talking to a friend, and we're going to kind of go off track here. I'm just going to say it. But many years ago, when I was, I was working with this guy at a record store, and he said to me, he's like, yeah, I used to really love Neil Diamond when I was a kid. Right. And I think of everything I have ever loved, I still fucking love it. Man. Love it. Man, but that just proves that you're a true music fan, man. Yeah. I guess. I'm hardcore. Serious. <laughs> like, I am dedicated and loyal. loyal. A loyal fan of music. But anyway, go ahead. Okay, we're going to the mid to late 90s again. My high school friend, Aaron, is a maniac. A fully functioning, uh, contributing member of society and everything, but a maniac nonetheless. And he's somewhat of a lifelong metalhead. More death or groove or like doom than hair metal, but he likes his shit heavy, right? He likes it loud. And he's into demons and he's into violence and comic books and fast cars. He's a cool dude. And he's also one of my musical influencers. Now, not a ton of the shit that we got in together stuck with me the way that Neil Diamond stuck with you and everything you've always loved stuck with you. Sometimes I just move on, but that does not mean that it wasn't an important part of my sonic evolution. You know what I'm saying? It of was. Course. They're, build, they're building blocks. Right. I remember Aaron's dad, Larry. He uh, was influential as well, not directly, but indirectly. He must have been a member of uh, BMG or Columbia House or one of those. <laughs> I mean, he had to be because he had so many cassettes and compact discs. Very eclectic music fan. We'd often raid his collection to see what we could like dub on tape for ourselves. His dad collection is responsible for me hearing the Sex Pistols for the first time, like all the way through. Responsible for me hearing the Clash, the Butthole Surfers, and even like shit you wouldn't expect, like old school rap, like LL Cool J's radio. First time I ever heard that was from the tape that Aaron's dad had. Just countless gems. This goes back to what I was saying about my parents. My parents were not those cool parents, by the way. That cool parent, by the way. (laughs) But anyway, go ahead. Uh, So with Aaron, I can remember, like, we would lift weights uh, before football season and shit, and we would listen to, like, hardcore music that he liked. So we'd listen to industrial bands like KMFDM and Machine Head, Skinny Puppy and Ministry. Uh, Marilyn Manson, I remember when he came out with that, like, Portrait of American Family shit. Uh, and weirder shit like the revolting cocks and pop will eat itself and of course the more mainstream metal acts of that time which were like sepultura and white zombie and helmet and tool and pantera aaron especially doug pantera they were like his anger management therapy kind of he was pretty tough and he was buff so he was definitely willing to get into the pits when we would go to these shows Uh, along with the skinheads he didn't care me not so much i cared i wasn't going in there no way but I was there with him, and I remember watching from a safe distance <laughs> him doing his thing at a Pantera show at the Saginaw Civic Center, and he was moshing or whatever, and out of nowhere, he gets sucker punched, uh, his nose was broken, there was blood everywhere, it was so fucking gross, dude, but it didn't deter him from continuing to want to go to all these shows, and I'd often tag along. We followed bands like the Deftones pretty closely when they first came out, specifically remember seeing them in Pontiac with 
a band who was just coming out called Limp Biscuit. <laughs> um, they just released a $3 Bill Y'all EP, oh, and that was a trip. Oh it was such a weird, weird time in music, that rap rock, <laughs> new metal scene. Anyways, the most memorable show that I attended with my maniacal pal, Aaron, would have to be in 1997. Again, he and I, maybe our friend Marty or our friend Nick, we all went down to the shelter, which is the bar in the basement of St. Andrew's Hall in Detroit. We went to see a cool band that we liked named Incubus, and they were playing with two other bands from California that were touring with them. Uh, we weren't aware of either of these other bands at the time. It was uh, must have been an all-ages show. It had to be because, uh, you know, we weren't 21 yet. Maybe it was 18 and over, not sure. But it was a bar atmosphere, so that was really cool for us. It felt like spring break or like we went to Canada or something. And it was also neat to see all the members of these bands just hanging out in the crowd, playing pool, drinking beer. It just felt different than what I was used to, different in a good way, kind of like a mix between a local hall show, uh, which I was used to because my friend Larry would have put those on and his older brother Tommy did as well. I was familiar with that vibe, but it, it felt more, I don't know, like professional. Maybe because there was like actual tickets sold or something. Not sure, but it was it was a fucking cool vibe, man. The first band gets up and they look fucking insane. Like mental patient slash homeless dudes. Uh, they're selling these cassette maxi singles for like two bucks a pop. And their name? Where's System of a Down? System of a Down. And clearly before they hit it big. And God damn it. That was intense. That's another band like Eminem that you, I, you I'm surprised they never did more. <laughs> they didn't really take off. I'm trying to bring the bangers, and you're just like, eh, you know. No, I love System of a Down. I'm just being facetious. Like, <laughs> System of a Down rules. Like, I can't imagine seeing, like, them, like, coming up. That would have been awesome. Right. They blew us away. They blew everybody away. So, of course, we bought their two-buck tape. Next up, a more normal-looking band uh, named Far, F-A-R. They were more like post-punk emo type shit, but really, really good, just excellent. So I bought a cool shirt and their EP entitled Soon from them. Uh, apparently I was really flexing with the merch purchases on that night. I don't know, I bought a little something for everybody, but it was affordable. You're supporting the bands, yeah. man. Yeah. Dude, I ate it up. You're putting burritos in their bellies. That's awesome. I'll take it all. Give me it all. And gas in the van. Fuck that. So yeah. last That's what you're supposed to do. <laughs> <laughs> Lastly, Incubus gets up there. And uh, at that time, they only had their first LP out. It was called Science. Uh, really spoke to us as teenagers, right? We really dug yeah. it. They introduced some new material from their set uh, that would eventually be featured on their next LP. So that felt like exclusive to us. Uh, their lead singer, Brandon Boyd, he's like this typical Cali bruh. Uh, uh, disgustingly slender and handsome, sweating. Yeah, he's a sexy motherfucker. Yeah, shirtless, basically. So, yeah. I mean, if you don't know Brandon Boyd, imagine like... If uh, if a snowboard could sing, and he <laughs> and he sang songs mostly about Buddhist enlightenment, but sometimes also about fucking or drugs or fucking on drugs, but always with the aim of being enlightened, that's basically Brandon Boyd. So here's this. He's dreamy as fuck. <laughs> he played this solo song to start out the set. Just a boy in his didgeridoo and i'm not sure if it was a didgeridoo it might have been one of those alphorns or some other related fucking massive wind instrument <laughs> okay. i think it i think i remember having wheels whatever it was and it was the first and only time that like i saw that except for maybe like a ricola commercial or something you know like this dude brought in this wheeled <laughs> wait, instrument wait 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 what wait i gotta do it <laughs> ricola 
Sorry, I had it. It was like wildly ineffective. It was totally unnecessary, but it was undoubtedly memorable. It was very 90s. And of course, it was the new metal scene, the mid to late 90s, so there had to be a DJ, right? And Homeboy was cutting vinyl and scratching on stage. And that was, at the time, really cool for me to see him doing his thing. I mean, it was just cool for me to see all the gear up on stage and see what he was doing. Well, and that wasn't even a scene at that point. I mean, that's pretty that's pretty embryonic yeah. at that In point. retrospect, however, uh, I'm not like you. Uh, it's not all that cool, <laughs> dude. I'll I mean, whatever. at the time, I enjoyed the show. It was great from start to finish. That's all that matters. Great memories. That's Incubus and Far and System of a Down at the Shelter, 1997. That is badass because the shelter. Here's the thing: as many times as I've been to St. Andrews and as many times I've seen shows in Detroit, obviously because we live in right. Michigan, I have never seen a show. Oh, in you're shelter. kidding me! No, no. I somehow I've completely missing any shows. Wow, in the shelter. it's amazing. Well, it's cool. It's like a bar, man. Yeah, it's neat. I mean, I've been down there for dancing afterwards, but I've never seen any bands down there. I've been down there witnessing slam dancing. <laughs> <laughs> it's because you're a badass. Yeah, right. Every time Aaron would get in the pit, I was traumatized from seeing all that blood. I'm going to tell you, too, that I'm not a pit guy either. I was much more happy watching that shit from the soundboard. I'm good with that. I'm good. <laughs> That's okay. We got to embrace it. Yeah, I don't need to get punched in the face while I listen to music. I'm fine with that. Yeah, me too. Me too. All right, so <laughs> another epic Dion tale <laughs> of new metal glory. What song or songs... Are you going to use on the mixtape to represent this particular live experience? I'm just going to do one song from my numerous concert adventures with my maniacal buddy Aaron. It would be a cut from Far. That was the second band to perform at that Killer Shelter show. Sure, sure. And it's a track called Mother Mary. It's a nice, quick and dirty, heavy emo rock number. It's got sweet riffs, a lot of stop and go. It's just a cool tune. I've got a split 45 with that song and then an Incubus track on the flip side of it. <laughs> and that music... It just reminds me of that general era, you know, that scene. It reminds me of high school bands, of friends finding their voices, of renting out bowling alleys and halls and going to shows at coffee houses. Just some good old-fashioned late 90s nostalgia. Looking forward to seeing where you fit that fucker on the mix. (laughs) (laughs) Late 90s teenage young adult angst. Right. Jay, can you hook me up with another concert story, man? I'm loving this. This is great. I know. I'm having a really good time, actually. This is good. I needed this. It's Yeah, it's been awesome. Okay. But the second show that popped into my head is I'm going to do uh, the time that I saw you 2 at the uh, L.A. Coliseum on the Joshua Tree Tour. That's so cool, man. I can't wait to hear that story. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> so basically, I would just say it was the it was U2 Josh Retreat Tour. It was 1987. I want to preface it with saying that we had seen them on the Josh Retreat Tour when they had played the Pontiac Silverdome earlier that year. And it was funny because me and my friends went down to that too. It was the only time I've ever spent the night to get tickets for a show. We still got shitty seats. The Pontiac <laughs> Silverdome sucked for music. It sure did. It was a great show because it was U2, but it sounded like crap. It was garbage. But me and all my friends went, and we were super excited anyway. So that, that I just want to preface that I had seen them earlier. That was actually the very first, like, huge stadium show that they'd ever done was the Pontiac Silverdome, oh, by the okay. way. Yeah. So at that point, uh, we, I had moved out to California. Um, my friend Tim was living in a place called Lompoc or Lompoc, if you want to argue with people, Lompoc, California, which is in Santa Barbara County, but it's in the middle of California. Okay. Mostly well-known for... 
Lompoc or Lompoc Federal Prison is there, uh-huh. and also Vandenberg Air Force Base. So okay. that city at the time, you got to remember, this was like the 80s, so it's probably gotten really, to be a really cool city. But we went, it was mostly populated by people who either had family of people who were in the prison uh-huh. or family of people who were in the Air Force. So my friend Tim was in the Air Force. He was stationed at Vandenberg. I'd always wanted to move to California. It had been like a dream of mine since I was a kid. And so when he was out there, that was A, point A, Bay City, point B, Lompoc, California. That's how I ended up out there. Holy mackerel. That's quite the trek, bud. Yeah. So we're living out there. And at the time, I was working third shift at a 7-Eleven. So my whole thing was on Saturdays slash Sundays when I would work, the LA Times would come in. I would buy the LA Times. I'd buy some chocolate milk. I'd buy my donuts. I'd ride my bike home because I didn't have a car. And so my whole thing was like you'd go through in the entertainment section, you'd see what shows were coming up. And yeah, so you two were playing the LA Coliseum. My friend Tim was a huge fan. My friend Doug, who I moved out to California with, was also a huge fan. Awesome. Unfortunately, by the time I saw the show, the show had been sold out. Oh, motherfucker. Yeah, so what we did was in the back of, much like all any entertainment magazines or newspapers at that time, in the back there was always ads for ticket. Brokers. I'm doing air quotes right now. Ticket brokers. Right. Scalpers. Yeah, it's legalized scalping. Yep. So we decided we were going to go see you too. We had to go. We had to see you. You have to go, dude. So we actually, and this is going to be hard to fathom for people who are younger than us, but there was no internet. Nope. So basically you would see the ad for the ticket broker. You would collect the money. You'd put it together in a money order and you would send it down to the ticket broker. Oh my God. Ask for four tickets because we got four tickets. And then they would send you tickets back, and you had no idea whether you would get, first of all, whether you'd even get tickets back. Yeah. Or secondly, once you got the tickets, where they'd even be. Right. Because you couldn't go on the internet, you couldn't look at the website to see the schematic of the where. So a lot of times, even back in the day, when you bought tickets for a show, you went down there, you didn't know where your seats were until you got there. Right. So we sent our money down, and I I also want to point this out too, that the tickets for the show to see you two at the LA Coliseum was nineteen dollars and fifty cents. Oh man. Yeah. $19.50. Yeah, yeah. Nineteen dollars and fifty cents. Yep. And so through a ticket broker, of course, they're trying to make money. So they doubled the price. So at the time to us, this seemed this was nuts that we each spent fifty dollars a piece oh on my our tickets. God, dude. That seemed crazy at the time. That was double the price. I mean think about it. I mean like I guess now would be like going on StubHub and paying whatever the double or whatever. Yeah, so you like two hundred bucks, five hundred dollars or a thousand dollars to see the Rolling Stones. Yeah, but fifty dollars seemed like a lot to us. So we bought our tickets. We had no idea where the seats were. So that day, you know, we get in our car, Tim's car. We drive down to L.A. for the show. We get there, and again, we have no idea where the tickets are right. and suffice it to say they're very 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 far away really they're, they're, they're not <laughs> close to the stage at all and it is the LA Coliseum for Christ yeah sake. dude so it's that's, a, that's a gigantic. fairly big venue it's yeah. a fairly big venue so I don't know why we expected we were going to get these great seats for 50 bucks <laughs> so <laughs> so we get there we're all like kind of disappointed but it's okay because you too and we're super excited and I would say that they did they played two nights at the Coliseum. Um, it was November 17th was the night that we went. They also played November 18th. They played the night that we saw them, Steve Jones from the Sex Pistols opened uh-huh. with the Pretenders as like 
the middle act oh, and you two. And awesome. then the next night, it was exactly the same except for Steve Jones, the Bodines opened up. Okay. So we get there. We're at the show. Steve Jones is there. I'm a big Sex Pistols fan, but it was awful because he was just doing his cocaine heavy metal shit at that point. He was terrible. And it was very far away. And you also have to remember, too, they didn't have screens. There was nothing to fucking look at. So back right. in the day, you brought your binoculars. The venues you would go to would rent binoculars. You were just on your own. You were just watching ants, basically. <laughs> so Steve Jones was awful, and he brought some girl up to shriek through anarchy in the UK, and it was terrible, too. But the Pretenders were the next band. Right, and they weren't terrible. I'm they were not terrible. I love their Pretenders. But here's the thing about that, is this was at the time that the Smiths had broken up, and Johnny Marr had played guitar. Johnny Marr, the guitar player from the Smiths, had, was playing guitar for the Pretenders. I don't know that he ever recorded with them, but he played live with them. Right. And he was playing live with them that night. So I was jacked as fuck that I was going to get to see Johnny Marr. That's fucking tight, dude. It is. It's amazing. So it's basically it's me, my friend Tim, my friend Doug, and one of Tim's Air Force buddies whose name I cannot remember. Steve Jones gets done, and me and Doug look at each other and we're like, fuck this. We're just, this is too far. This is too far. Like right. We need to get onto the field. Uh-huh. So, we, so we walk down to the field. We walk down to the very lowest bowl. And I don't know to this day why we did this. I don't know why the <laughs> other people who did this did this. But as soon as the pretenders started to play, a, sh- a gaggle of people jumped from the wall onto the field and fucking made a run for <laughs> the field, the seats in the middle of the field. And at the corner of my eye, I can see all these people getting caught by security. And I'm just fucking running, like a running back (laughs) with the football going for the end zone. Yeah, that's a sports metaphor. How about that? Yeah, dude. Running for those fucking chairs. Yeah. And I could have sworn that my friend Doug got busted too. But it's funny because we were talking about this show before we started doing the podcast. Right. Because I kind of wanted to just like nail down some memories. But he tells me he didn't get caught. I thought this whole time that he had gotten caught. So I make it actually to where the seats are. The pretenders are playing, and I kind of squeeze in with this couple. Right. There's, it's just lawn chair. It's like not lawn chairs. It's uh, folding metal chairs. folding chairs. Yeah. yeah, in the middle of the field. And so I, I kind of squeeze in with this couple who are super cool with me being there. Right. So I'm like, but, it's, but the best part about this too is the whole time security's got flashlights, and they're just looking for all of us, <laughs> all the people that they haven't caught yet. And they're looking for people that don't belong there. And it was so cool. This couple was so cool because they hid me out. It was awesome. Like, they totally hid me from security. So I watched the Pretenders play. Right. And that was easy because it was dark and they couldn't really see anything. But once the lights came up, they were super, super, like, intent on getting everyone out of there who didn't need to be there. This couple was so cool. They hid me the whole time between the Pretenders and U-Tool. And I want to say that I was probably within the first 20 rows, if not the first 25 rows, something like that. And they hid me out the whole time we talked. They were super cool. They were super nice. And all I need to do was just get through, because I knew like once the lights came up for you too, I was going to be okay, because it was going to be chaos. And at that point, security wasn't going to make, it wasn't going to be a big deal at all. They wouldn't be able, it wouldn't even matter. And they got me through that. And then you two came out and they came out and, and Bono came out like swaggering to where the streets have no name. Right. And this was everything that the Pontiac Silverdome show was not, this right. show was. It was a religious experience. It was just fucking like, it was just spiritual and it was badass. It was like one of the greatest shows that I've ever seen in my life. And especially to be that close right. was amazing. And one of my favorite <laughs> memories from that show is at one point, and I'm sure we've all done this, like in big venues, I turned around 
because I wanted to see what it looked like behind me. I wanted to see right. all the people because I was up close. Yeah. And the Coliseum at that point, there was probably over like, according to the review from the LA Times, because I cut it out and I have it in my scrapbook because I'm a teenage girl. There was over <laughs> seventy-one thousand, over seventy-one thousand oh people. Oh my god, there. dude! And I turned around to see this ocean of people. And U2 is playing Bullet the Blue Sky, which was part of their first encore. set of, yeah, their encore, the first song of their encore. Did, was there fireworks and then they come no. out? No. Well, that was after. Okay. But while they're playing Bullet the Blue Sky, I turn around so I could see this ocean of people, this sea of people. Right. And I look up and there's like helicopters hovering above and spotlights. <laughs> oh my God. And Edge is doing his guitar solo. And I swear to God, I fucking cried at the most perfect U2 moment. Ever. And it's just so weird to see all these helicopters and it was like a jailbreak. There's like all these like lights from the helicopters like, that they were flashing into the crowd and stuff. Yeah. And for the longest time I thought maybe I made that up. Maybe it never happened. Right. But talking to Doug about it a few weeks ago, he completely like like no, that totally happened. Oh, that's fucking great, man. Yeah, I have so goosebumps great. like still talking about it. And honestly, I've never seen you two again since then. And not because I don't like them anymore. But right. sometimes you see a band and the show is so perfect, you're like, you know what? I'm good. I never yeah. need to see that band ever again because that nothing is ever gonna top that show. Oh yeah. And plus you're saving yourself a ton of money, dude. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <There's> <laughs> that so but I do want to say this because this is again how geeky I am. I cut out every article from the LA Times. Right. They did a review of the show, but they also did like an article about U2 fans because this is the time that U2 is going from Unforgettable Fire right. to Joshua Tree. They're breaking big. So all the grumbling fans with all the Johnny Late come lately U2 fans. But so there's an article about U2, and I just want to read this part from this article because it mentions us. Oh, wow. Yeah, and so it says this. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> It was pretty crazy on the floor, she said. There was a lot of pushing and shoving and yelling, which there was. Yeah. And this is my favorite part. <laughs> Field guard, Ralph Sewell, 50. I'm 56 right now, by the way. Yeah. Felt the crowd was a bit more unruly than he'd expected. He particularly pointed to the 20 or so people who leaped over barriers from the <laughs> inclined seats to the field as the second bill pretenders began at set. Yes. That was fucking yes. me. I made the goddamn LA Times. You did it. Fuck's sake. You did it. Yeah. So, and here's the other thing, too. Like, I have no sense of direction. He also remembered, too, that obviously there was no cell phones in 1987. Right. So, the fact that not only did I find my friends again, and I also found our parking space again is amazing because I have no sense of direction. <laughs> is a feat in and of itself. It's a, it's a magic In and of evening, itself. Dude. It was. It was honestly, that's like, I have such vivid memories of that. And I, it was one of the best shows I've ever been to. That's so yeah. fucking good. Oh, uh, man. I got goosebumps just listening to it, Jay. You did it. it it's Dude, I have goosebumps talking about it still. So. Oh, it's a fucking goose pimple fest here <laughs> on Lightning Licks Radio. <laughs> if you had to choose a song or songs from that show that you're going to put on the mix later on in the episode, what would that song or songs be? Of course I'm going to pick Bullet the Blue Sky. Okay. Unfortunately, I don't have Rail and Hum on vinyl, okay. so I can't pick the live version. But it doesn't matter. No. Because that's one of my favorite songs by U2 anyway. Right. And that was just the pivotal moment, just like with the helicopters and the light and the fireworks and all that shit. It was just, it's almost like you're making that shit up. Right. It was a magical and spiritual show in every way. That's so cool, man. Yeah. So we're down to our third and last show. We're going to do three apiece. So what is the uh, third show, Dion, that you, uh, Epic Saga, Journey rock show music experience that you would like to talk about jay dion 
Sometime in December 1997, I had a date. Maybe not officially like a date date, but <laughs> it was to me. And this is a very pretty, very cool girl. Amber said, well, total knockout. Wow, you're picking out. You're, you're actually calling out last names, too. I don't care. Totally out of my league. Wow. Uh, That's brave shit right okay. there. Okay, well, maybe I'll just censor out her last name. No, you can't. No, don't. <laughs> don't. You have to. It's awesome. No. And maybe she'll hear this and go, fuck, that was, I, I didn't know. No, please. She knew. <laughs> she asked if I'd like to go see a band fish with her. And I agreed, obviously, because, you know, she wants to hang out. I'm going to hang out. Because pretty girls make you do dumb things like go see fish. Yes. I was familiar <laughs> with fish, I guess. I mean, I was aware of who they were. My friend Jeff O'Shea had one of their cassette tapes that was a hoist in his car, and we jam it every now and sure. again while we were riding around at lunch period, blazing Papa <laughs> Fat Bellies. That's our slang for weed. We were potzers. Uh, the music was all right, man. The songs were kind of campy, but it was cool. But honestly, it's one of those times where you get to a show and you have like no idea what you're in for, right? Because you just don't have the background information to make like an educated guess of what you're going to experience. I had no fucking idea. Sure. First of sure. all, it's at the Palace of Auburn Hills, right? And the palace is a pretty big place. It's not the Coliseum. But it's no, it was big. It's big. It's a man. big place. It could hold probably around fifteen thousand fans. I'm assuming because the Pistons had a seating capacity of twenty thousand. I remember at their NBA games. I looked it up online. The concert attendance capacity twenty four thousand. So it's a pretty large venue for a show. It's not small. And to my shock, this place, the Palace of Auburn Hills, was sold out. And I was like, what the for fish? I can see like for kiss, but I realize now <laughs> what fish was about. Now I know that they, you know, their fan base is, was at the time and continues to this day to be a very dedicated bunch. And they have that jam band appeal, much like the Grateful Dead, adored by fans for their uh, live performance more than their studio releases. Uh, one of the first bands to have a presence on the internet. They streamed their shows as early as the 90s. They basically had all the makings of a sonic cult. And we were right in the middle of that cult. So we arrive find our seats we're just getting settled into our surroundings and you could like cut the scent of patchouli <laughs> with a knife dude it was like it sounds terrible yeah, it was basement dwelling hippy dippy <laughs> burnouts and like granola whores as far as the eyes could see man Twenty-four thousand patchouli stinking motherfuckers it was not what i expected i expected like uh more of a mix of like I don't know, like alt chicks sure. and frat boys, maybe like the kids that actually listen to the shit at parties in high school. But it wasn't like that. This it was gypsies, dude. It was fucking crazy. So uh, the show, you know, <laughs> it gets dark, and then the stage lights up, and four normal ass looking thirty somethings take the stage, begin to noodle around, <laughs> break into these extended jams. I mean. The masses around us were feeling it, dude. But if I'm being honest, I, I mean, I just wasn't. I may have been like faking it and doing my best, you know, to look cool. They played uh, during the first set, like an hour, maybe more than an hour. They played maybe seven songs in that whole entire time. So it was just like these long jams that would just keep going and going. And I recognized 
uh, zero of the songs that they played. <laughs> but everybody else that we were with uh, knew all the words and shit. They were just like jamming to it. It was very loud. Uh, the bass was deep and thunderous. But the light show was killer. It had a lot of haze, a lot of strobes. I mean, if you were like a narcoleptic fish <laughs> fan, you were like pretty much out of luck because seizures were definitely being triggered that evening at the Palace of Iron Hills. I tell you that much. I remember I used to wear like the safety pin on the bill of my ball cap for some reason. It was like my style. And during uh, intermission, this random potzer from behind me was like poking me on my shoulder to get my attention. And so I turn around and he's like, hey man, hey, your pin. Can I use your pin for this pinner man? And he had like this roach that he wanted to cash and he wanted to use the safety pin from my hat to smoke this roach. And I was like, yeah, sure dude, whatever. So I took off my pin from my hat and I gave it to him. And he offered a share, but I didn't partake, but maybe Amber might have. I can't really remember. Anyways, uh, set two was just as long. It was just as trippy, just as much sensory overload. It was, um, I don't know, maybe generally enjoyable, but I was like exhausted, (laughs) dude, from all those jams. Anyway, the show finally ends. Finally. And he's like, thanks a lot. We had a great time. Hope we didn't play too long for you. And I was thinking like, uh, you kind of did. You kind of did play too long, bud. No big deal. It was all right. Thanks, everybody. We had a good time tonight. Hope we didn't play too long for you. Uh, was it the best show ever? No. Was it life-changing? Nope. Was it memorable? Yeah. But... Did it spark a real-life love connection? (laughs) Also, no. That didn't happen either. However, earlier that year, that same year, 1997, in the summer, I was at that same venue, the Palace of Auburn Hills, to see Rage Against the Machine, who was touring with the Wu-Tang Clan. Great show. Another rad show. And I went with my friend Chris and another friend who was also named Chris and that Chris's little brother Jeff and Jeff's girlfriend at the time, a cute little blonde who wore glasses, had a rocking body, (laughs) and I had no real interaction with her except, uh, you know, general banter on the road trip in the car on the way to the show. And while we were walking to the gates from the parking lot, I noticed that she was wearing a thong with her lower rise jeans. And for some unexplicable reason, I decided to oh, give her a wedgie. Because girls love that Anyways, shit. I know, right? <laughs> yeah, dude, a gentleman at these rock concerts, I tell you. Super chivalrous and classy <laughs> as all hell. Anyways, <laughs> that young lady, the wedgie victim, turns out to be none other than the girl who lives upstairs right now, Shannon. No shit! Still very cute little blonde. Oh my She's, god! Yeah, isn't that something? That is. That's my lady. Twas fate, I tell ya. What a wonderful oh my origin God, that's story to tell for the grandkids. <laughs> How did you guys meet? I was like, Grandpa was an immature pervo, and he borderline sexually harassed Grams oh at the God, Wu-Tang show. He is like, awesome. Fucking great. It's a true American <laughs> love story. One for the ages. Rage and Wu-Tang brought us together 20 years later. <laughs> In an uncom- un- completely related note, Wedgie Victim, great band name, by the way. <laughs> what you <laughs> Okay, so if you were to pick a song <laughs> from that awesome. disastrous show that led to bigger and better things, obviously, for you, what awful fish <laughs> are you going to pick? Well, I shouldn't say that they're all, they're all awful. I mean, no, they're, they're, all, know, they're okay. awful. The only... Uh, that's just me. That's just that's me. That's fine. Sorry. That's a fine. It takes all types, baby. We can't love everything. 
different strokes. <laughs> the only fish that I own on vinyl is Billy Breeze, and that's like the studio album that came out the same year that I saw them live. The tune I'd like to share <laughs> is entitled Waste, and it actually, I don't think, is a terrible song. It's a sweet little kind of ballad. It's very strong lyrically, but it's one of those types of tunes that could be used as a breakup song or a wedding song. It's just a cool cut, and I think it works much better on the mix than like an 11-minute jam session would. That's for sure. So if we're going to put fish on the mix, this is the fish song, the only one that can fit. Have fun with that, Jay. And also another tune that I want to represent, this concert memory. Wow. Fish is uh, one of those bands with such a dedicated fan base. It was neat to see that, to be in that environment, to witness firsthand the community that existed around this band because thousands and thousands and thousands of people were into it. And I imagine it's very similar to like Deadheads, right? Yeah, and I have to say, I don't I don't mean to dismiss them because like right. that in itself, like creating a universe like that, like without any radio airplay, like creating that atmosphere, that environment on your own is yeah. really, really impressive. Right. It really is. I agree. And I haven't had my uh, Grateful Dead moment yet. I do enjoy like stories about their legacy and their history. I just haven't been totally sold on them sonically, and I haven't been like baptized. I haven't like embarked into this particular wormhole, and I don't really plan to. Maybe I will one day, but whatever. And I don't own a lot of Grateful Dead vinyl either. I do have Touch of Grey, Jukebox 45. That's pretty cool, but I don't want to put that song <laughs> yeah. on it. It's cool because it's like pressed well, on Grey vinyl, which is a nice touch yeah. aesthetically. Okay. Wow. Touch, Grey vinyl. Wow. wow. What you do you know? You brought it all together. Yeah. But I do, however, own a soundtrack to a 1970 independent art house <laughs> film, Zabriskie Point, where dead frontman Jerry Garcia provided an acoustic guitar number for the film's score entitled simply Love Scene. It's a really cool cut. It's got a lot of emotion. Uh, and for a guy who got a lot of critical flack during his career for basically being somewhat of a hack when it comes to the guitar playing, I feel like that might be unwarranted. When I listen to this song, especially, it's really quite beautiful. And a track like that, just feel like our listeners might want to check it out. So we're going to throw that fucker on the mix, too, somewhere. Jay, your job. <laughs> I can't wait, man. An acoustic. I can't wait. Jerry Garcia tune from my collection. Jay, I'm fiending for more nostalgia. I'm pining for more potent concert memories. Can you hook a brother up, man? I can. And I wanted to go with something a little more recent. Yeah. So I'm going to talk about this band, and I feel like I could do like a whole episode about this band. The Replacements are my favorite band of all time, period. Are you sure? No, no, they are. They are my, I heard it was the right place, right time, yeah. early 20s, let it be. That band hit me exactly when it was supposed to hit me. And um, I could again, again, we could do a whole episode on how much I love the replacements. But I want to talk about not so much a particular show as a particular weekend of shows. Okay. So I'm just gonna throw this out there, and everybody's gonna be super jealous about this. I'm already jealous. But it's guided by voices on Friday. Ooh. Reunited replacements on Saturday. Ow, you like a son of a bitch. That's what I'm saying. So here's the right. thing. Okay. So many, many months before, the replacements were doing, they had done a couple festival show reunion things. Uh -huh. Nobody was really sure if they were going to tour or not. Okay. So of course, they're going to do a homecoming tour in St. Paul, because obviously they're from Minneapolis. Right, right. So tickets go on sale. My friend Paul, who lives in Grand Rapids, was working like at one of the venues down there, Van Andel, and he was able to get us tickets for that show. So we were going to drive to St. Paul to go see one of our favorite bands, The Replacements. Reunion show in St. Paul. 
super fucking excited. You could not have been more excited about that. That's fucking awesome, dude. Sure. So this is like four to five months before the show. Uh huh. So also in that time before the show, tickets also go on sale for another one of my favorite bands. And I feel like this book ends because I've loved the replacements forever. Right. Guided by Voices is one of my newer. I mean, not newer. They've more been around newer, forever, right. but more, more newer, newer than the replacements. They announced a show at the Pyramid Scheme the night before. There's okay. no oh, sweet. fucking way we're not going to go see <laughs> Guided by Voice. Because also my friends who are going to see the replacements with me, Polly and Joel, hello, although right. they probably don't listen to this podcast, are also big GBV fans. Great. There's no way we're not going to both of these shows at all. Okay. So we bought tickets for that show. So I get up, I drive down to Grand Rapids. This is Friday, uh-huh. the, the, the Guided by Voices show, because I have my tickets up, mm-hmm. Friday, September 12, 2014. Okay. Guided by Voices Pyramid Scheme. I love that venue, too. I fucking love it. Oh, it's, it's badass, for sure. And actually, when the Pyramid Scheme opened, the very first show they had was a two-night stand by GBV. You're kidding Which me. we also went to both nights for that, too. Oh, that dude. was awesome, too. That's rad. So I drive down there for the GBV show, uh-huh. and we know that we have to get up early the next morning because we have to drive to Minneapolis. We have to drive to Minnesota the next day. Right. So we think we're going to be cool. We're not... Because you go to GBV show... You drink. It's about the alcohol that's part of the show. Right. You know, it's part of the vibe of the show. But we're going to be cool. We're not going to drink as much because we have to get up early in the morning. But none of that's true. No. We drink like we didn't have anywhere to go the next day. Uh, you sons of bitches. Like we have nothing but time the next day. Right. And GBV are awesome. They're always fucking awesome. And this was during when the classic GBV lineup was back together. Okay. So we do the GBV thing. It's a great show. We get super drunk. As you do. Okay. As we do. And they and I should say, I have the set list. They did 47 songs that night. 47 <laughs> Four, songs. 47 songs that night. I don't remember who opened for them, but that's neither here nor there. So we go to the show. We do the GBV thing, like the whole GBV experience. If you've ever seen them, you know what I'm talking about. If not, it's a, it's a big fucking drunken, it's a, it's a party, whatever. Okay. And so I still remember going home. I went to my friend Joel's house, just completely ripped out of my mind. He's in his room. <laughs> I'm sleeping on the couch. And we talked for two hours about how great Don't Tell a Soul by the Replacements is uh-huh. until we both fucking fall asleep. <laughs> oh, my we God. Literally, you fall we, asleep we, talking we, about Yeah, we literally wake up like probably two to three hours later, probably still drunk. I rented a car because I wasn't sure if my vehicle was going to make it. So we get up in the morning. We're all probably still drunk. We all take showers. We get in the car, the rental car. I drive. I'm driving the whole way. We get in the car. We drive all the way to St. Paul. We get up probably about 8 or 9 o'clock in the morning. So it's me, my friend Paul, and my friend Joel. And then another friend of ours who I had met that weekend who kind of came at the last minute. Her name is Alyssa. So we do do what the three of us do. We drive. We listen to rock and roll. We talk about ACDC. We talk about Kiss. We talk about NWA. (laughs) And we listen to all three of them all the way down. Poor Alyssa. Awesome. Yeah. Poor Alyssa. (laughs) (laughs) So we get there. Probably we get there in time, probably like four or five o'clock, to, just to check into the hotel because we got a hotel. Yeah. We check in, we get back into the, the rental car, we drive to the venue. The venue is a place called the Midway, which is basically kind of like where the Loons play. It's kind of this big, okay. uh, like a double baseball A baseball field, baseball field where, yeah, yeah where, where minor league teams play. And this was actually the last show that was going to happen. They were actually going to demolish it. Okay. So there was some sporting things that were going to happen there, but this was the last show. Like REM had played there before. Like Dylan had played there before. Oh, wow. And so this was like the last rock and roll stand for Midway. Okay. And I had no idea. Like, I didn't know it was outside. I didn't know if it was inside. I didn't know anything about the venue. I didn't look at it. Like, I didn't do any research. So I had no idea what to expect. The place was full. It was, like, heartwarming to, like, see 
because the replacements never sold a ton of records, so to see literally 10, 12, 15,000 people to see this band yeah. was like literally like heartwarming to me. Like the place was packed. That's great. So we get there and we, we do as the Romans do. We buy ourselves some grain belt beer <laughs> and we drink our beer. And we, we're going to take it easy because the night before, yeah. but again, we didn't do that either. <laughs> so that night, it's the replacements. They're obviously, they're our headlining. Yeah. There was a band called Lucero or Lucero opening up. Mm-hmm. And then also the Hold Steady, who I love, oh, yeah. who's the middle band, yep. who are, there's a Minneapolis connection. I think Craig Finn might be from Minneapolis. And then the replacements. So great. Lucero's fine. It's like I, I mean I don't really care. I think every every band to me is a speed bump to replacements at this point. Yeah. And I love I and I do love the hold steady. And they were really good that night. And any other night I've been super excited. Mm-hmm. But again, they were a speed bump. But I have to say, there's probably been like two shows in my life where I was so psychotically like anxious for a show yeah. that I was so sick to my stomach that I couldn't like honestly I just couldn't breathe I was so excited about seeing the <laughs> I never thought I'd ever see the replacements again. I've right. seen them before they've broken up like five or six times oh. and I never thought that I would ever see this band again right and so like I just remember being so tightened up with anxiety like this was actually going to happen so cool so I, like of course I'm an old man so I have to plan my bathroom breaks yep. so I run to the porta potty and there's a big line I'm like I just want to get through this line I want to get through this line before the replacements start and I do but of course at that point I lost my friends too so I did actually make it back in time uh-huh. and the replacements came out and uh, they were just they were everything that I wanted them to be they were the greatest rock and roll band in the world that night oh, as cool. they always are and it was a great fucking show they played everything that you needed them to play the set list was amazing and it was just, it was just, it was an amazing show. It was just, it was great. It was, a, again, a spiritual thing. And again, to see that many people seeing a band that nobody really cared about. Right. The band that's, that's influenced so many other bands. It doesn't yeah, really they're one of props. them. They're to one of them. see like a field full of people like there for that band, again, almost made me cry. It was, am- it was just an amazing show. Well, I never really thought that these tears would be coming from your stories, Jay, but you're getting me. All moist here. Oh, it's just oh my god, yeah, <laughs> awesome. And I also want to say too that in I just want to talk about my drive and itinerary. So let me just say that I drove from Bay City to Grand Rapids right. on that Friday. Woke up, drove from Grand Rapids to St. Paul that day. Yeah. Went to the show. Woke up the next day. Drove from St. Paul back to Grand Rapids. I was gonna spend the night. Didn't because sometimes you're just on a fucking roll. Right. And once you start driving, you don't want to stop. I dropped them off, drove from Grand Rapids back to Bay City. Holy crap. Woke up the next day and drove my sister back to Holt Lake Lake because she was watching my dad within like two days. Ooh. Man. You're a pro, dude. I know. I couldn't do it now. No. So, yeah, that, and, and, and I always consider that like one of the greatest rock and roll weekends of my life. Seeing like two of my favorite bands like two nights in a row was just absolutely it was amazing it was it was an unbelievable weekend that sounds fucking killer with fans who are like as big of fans as i right right thousands of them and thousands of jays yeah and the but the thing is is Polly and joel are young they had never seen the replacements ever this was the first time they'd ever seen them and they actually went to chicago and and Polly had seen them at i think Polly or joel had seen them at riot fest oh, okay but this was like the like one of the first times that they had ever seen that band live. So that was pretty amazing to see them with those guys well, too. It's amazing. Yeah. Shared memory, man. Can you give me a track or two that you want to put on the mix to memorialize your awesome rock and roll weekend? Sure. 
So for the Hold Steady, again, a band that I normally love and under any other circumstance. And they, again, they were really good. And you could tell that Craig Finn was super just jacked because the replacements are one of his favorite bands too. You could tell that he was so jacked and honored to be able to open up for that band. Yeah, dude. So I'm gonna pick, I want to pick a, a song called I Hope This Whole Thing Didn't Frighten You, uh-huh. um, which is from the record. Uh, the record is actually called uh, Teeth Dreams, and they actually did that that night. That was one of the tracks that they did night in their set list that night. And then the second one I want to pick is a replacement track, of course, and that's uh-huh. Unsatisfied. That's the song, the very first time I heard the replacements when I bought Let It Be, that's the song that kind of got me. Yeah. Like, I, like yeah, I think you're at a certain time, a certain age, when you're like 21, 22, and you're just finding your way, and that song just fucking hits you hard. It still hits you hard, right. but it even really hits you hard when you first time you hear it. And that was a song that they hadn't even played yet. Like, they actually, even after that, they rarely played it. And that was, like, the very last encore. They, like, Westerberg came out, and he did the intro, just him and, him, like, himself and a guitar. Uh-huh. And then the rest of the band kicked in, too. But they didn't really do that song. for the, They actually did do a full-blown tour after that, but they didn't do that song. Oh, So wow. that's pretty special that they did that for us. Yeah, that dude. Night. Yeah. Stars aligned for Jay. Yeah, so unsatisfied. And a lot of other Matt's fans, too, you yeah. know, because they hadn't, like I said, they hadn't done it. So, yeah, so it was pretty magical for sure. And there's a great YouTube video from that night. And the thing, other thing, too, I didn't mention, too, there was a sign when we walked in there that said that there was going to be cameras there, that if you were legally allowing yourself to be filmed. Uh-huh. So that was, like, actually professionally filmed, but it's probably never going to see the light of day, yeah. which sucks. Yeah. Well, maybe, you know, if they went through the trouble. Well, they'd have to wait for Westerberg to die because he's so picky about that shit. They've been True. digging into the replacements back catalog forever, re-releasing stuff. And, yeah. and so many people are, like, jonesing for the show. But I don't know if technically if it's as great as they wanted it to be. So we may never see it as long as he's still alive. Maybe once yeah. he's passed on, they'll, they'll release it. But yeah, it was a great, honestly, it was just magical. And like, and I like celebrate the anniversary of that show like every year. I got off That's the track. Great. There's some YouTube clips of that too that are pretty like raw. But there's a really great yeah. unsatisfied clip of them, them doing that live from that night. That's pretty amazing. That's a fucking amazing, man. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jay, we did it again. We did do it again. Episode 11 about in the books basically what we're going to do is you're going to have to give me a couple of the records leave them on your porch and then i have to put them to vinyl and then you're going to decide how they fucking go together and then we're going to put them together it's going to be a whole process a whole socially distance absolutely safe we're not going to infect each other process thanks a lot obama are we still blaming obama now yeah. Okay, cool. But we want to be true to the process, too. We want to make sure that's from taken from vinyl and all that yeah. stuff. So Absolutely. But we're going to produce this mix based on our concert memories. And Which now, is going to be the most craziest mix ever, by the way. <laughs> absolutely. I am fucking fiending for a show, Jay. <laughs> Can't wait. I know. I am, like, super jacked, too. And at this, Yeah, me too. All right. Are you... Uh, Ready to start the uh, process of getting the shit mixed? As always, like I'm chomping at the bit on this one because this is so fucking all over the place. So yeah, I'm super excited to throw this monstrosity together. <laughs> let's fucking do it, bud. This sonic monstrosity. Let's do yeah. this shit. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, just give me a second and I'll uh, let me start the car here. <laughs> getting cold, getting chilly. Oh, that's the best. That is the fucking best, dude. This is so, dude, like, because I didn't want to be where the dog would see me when he goes out potty eater because he'll go fucking no, crazy. No, no, dude, I, I, dude, I know because I, Ollie's been giving me the, 
thousand yard stare or in this case a 20 yard stare from the living room the whole time we've been doing this right so so i'm down like in the church parking lot and people probably no i get that shit the neighbors probably think i'm waking or something if I, Who's this creep with the fogged look- up windows under the street lamp in the church parking lot? <laughs> Talking into a fucking microphone with two sets of headphones on and his fucking Jesus. Anytime I see people in our church parking lot that I don't belong there, yeah. I, I didn't realize this at first until a few summers ago, but they're all looking for those goddamn Pokemon things oh, on their phone. People probably think I'm just Pokemoning. So yeah, I hope they so are. That, which is a whole other level of weird, but <laughs> you know, I'm just podcasting, sir. Honest. I like the whole. <laughs> I, I like the story of you jacking off in your car more than I like you looking for Pokemon <laughs> shit. <laughs> it could be Pokemon. All right. Or if you're jacking off the Pokemon, <laughs> hey, teach their own, bud. I know. I'm not. I'm not judging. All right. I'm ready. You ready? Yeah. All right. So. We're going to get into our, our last concert, our last live concert experiences. Dion, what do you got?